For our 100th episode, it is only fitting we interview an investor at one of the key pioneering firms of the growth equity industry. I've heard others in the industry refer to the firm as the mighty General Atlantic. They are indeed the gold standard in growth investing. In this episode, we speak with Rob Vorhoff, Managing Director and Global Head of General Atlantic's Healthcare Group. Rob was recognized by GrowthCap as a top 25 healthcare investor of 2022. General Atlantic is a leading global growth equity firm providing capital and strategic support for growth companies. Established in 1980, General Atlantic operates out of 15 global locations across five regions and is supported by 455 employees. The firm has $64 billion in assets under management. Rob is active on a number of boards, including Alignment Healthcare, Equality Health, Included Health, Marathon Health, Oak Street Health, One Oncology, Stellar Health, and Vita Health. Rob joined General Atlantic in 2003. Previously, he was an analyst at Greenhill & Co. He graduated with a BS in finance from the McIntyre School of Commerce at the University of Virginia. I'm your host, RJ Lumba. We hope you enjoy the show. RJ Lumba is the managing partner of GrowthCap and the executive chairman of Market Insight Media. He is the host of Growth Investor, a podcast featuring today's best investors, executives, and founders. In the minutes ahead, we'll uncover insights and strategies for accelerating growth and succeeding in business. Rob, thanks so much for taking the time. It's a delight to chat with you today. What I'd like to jump right in, General Atlantic is very well known in the private capital universe as being one of the pioneers in growth investing. Could you tell us a little bit for our audience's sake, a little bit about the history of General Atlantic and Chuck Feeney? Yeah, I'd love to. So the firm's been around a long time. It was founded in 1980. And it's funny, it, it probably the, the awareness of the firm has grown, particularly over the last 19 years that I've been there. I remember when I joined back in 2003, I was telling people, even in the financial world, I joined this place called General Atlantic, and uh, it was surprising to me how often it was confused with General Electric. But the Chuck Feeney story is a really special one. It's so Chuck's really the founder of General Atlantic, and he's he was a very successful entrepreneur and started duty-free uh, stores. Most of us were familiar with in the airports, but super successful, and then started thinking about, I think, his own goals and impact of his life and became a huge believer in giving while living. And uh, the unusual start to General Atlantic, it was really our founding partners invested really for the first 10 years in the 80s, the capital of the Atlantic Philanthropies. And the Atlantic Philanthropies was the charity that Chuck formed. And so GA was really the captive investment office for that charity. And GA was very successful, did a lot of early stage growth investing, primarily in enterprise software companies in the 80s, and then went on to expand the capital base to outside capital in the 90s and you know, continued to grow and expand since then. But Chuck has gone on to become one of the most generous and impactful philanthropists really of all time. I think he's given away the vast majority of his wealth, close to, I think, $9 billion now. So just an extraordinary philanthropist and humanitarian. That start, and I think the cultural imprint he put on our organization is cherished. It was a huge part of the orientation I went through back in 2003. It is a huge part of the orientation everybody that joins the firm goes through now. And it's a big part of doing well by doing good, being giving back to our communities. And so it's a, it's a part of the cultural identity that we're very proud of at GA. And it's, it's a remarkable story. There's a great book that was written about him called The Billionaire that wasn't, that talks about his entrepreneurial journey and his success. And then 
this epiphany and his belief in giving while living and how he spent then the next four years of his life trying to be really thoughtful and impactful in his charitable work. Yeah, he was, he was giving anonymously, I think, for a long time. And it was, a, in fact, a stipulation that the recipient could not disclose who who actually granted the money. The founding, I guess, the business that really helped catapult him was duty-free shops. And that was international by nature. Did that play into how General Atlantic pursued kind of international opportunities? You know, I'm sure it did. He was just such a big believer in backing entrepreneurs. And the beginning of that book, talking about him growing that business, I mean, he was running around Europe and selling products to a lot of U.S. military personnel around Europe. So it's a great scrappy tale of building a business as an entrepreneur. But um, Steve Denning, our former CEO, you know, he just speaks. It's so he's so compelling when he talks about what an imprint Chuck had on his own career ambitions and what they were doing in the early days at General Atlantic and why they were doing it. Chuck was really clear. He's like, I'm backing you guys to invest this capital, but it's because I want to scale my impact and what I can get back over time. So that was really clear from day one. But you're right. It was was anonymous. It was a rule. And so in the at least the first 10 years, if not longer, I think even into the 90s, GA was really trying to stay under the radar. My understanding is there were not press releases on any of the deals. They never spoke about where the capital came from. And that book that I mentioned, I think it was a bit of an, an exposure. Like it was this reporter figured it out and just given the scale of the giving and finally then sort of approached Chuck and got an agreement to tell the story. And it's remarkable. I, I really highly recommend the book. We give it to entrepreneurs that we work with just to understand the history and the culture of GA. But I think it's also important for all of us to reflect on. And he had just unusual clarity. So he was a huge influencer to the giving pledge, which most people have heard about now. And Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, and others have really given them a lot of credit for influencing their own thinking. We're going to go into General Atlantic today and what the firm focuses on, what you focus on in particular. But before we do that, we share something in common that we both went to UVA, particularly the McIntyre School. And I recall back in the early 2000s, someone I knew, we kind of overlapped in a in a role that went on to work at General Atlantic. And there's a little bit of a, it seemed like there was a little bit of a UVA connection. Was there recruiting done at UVA? We didn't. I wish there had been. You know, I worked somewhere else. It's called Green Hill for a couple years right out of school. But there are a lot of UVA folks that are there that we're proud of. I don't think we're in the lead anymore. I think we've got some strong competition from Princeton and Wharton and a whole bunch of other great academic institutions. But I am pleased that we continue to find great people for, with the UVA background to come join the firm. It's great. I'll circle back to UVA at the end. Can you tell us about? Like, what would make an ideal investment for General Atlantic? Yeah, so uh, GA, which is pretty unique, at least for as long as the firm's been around, it's an exclusive focus on growth investing. Now, the definition of that has broadened for us over time. As I mentioned, it started off in enterprise software. It was then uh, really purely technology-enabled businesses in addition to, to pure technology investing. And really, since the early 2000s, the, the lens that we're applying to pick where we want to invest has been thematic growth investing. So it's almost easier to say, what are we not doing? We're not doing turnarounds. We're not doing pure consolidation plays. We're not doing traditional levered buyouts. And the way we think about it is we want the growth of the companies that we invest in and helping to build those companies. We want that to be the primary mathematical driver of the returns that we deliver to our investors. So it's not buying something out of favor at a low price and hoping it becomes in back in favor. It's not about cost cutting or it's not about unusual sophistication of financial engineering. And as a result, you know, our model is everybody's dedicated to a sector. The idea is that they understand the major trends that are defining their sector. 
And then you want to come up with and socialize and build conviction around themes that we can invest again against within those sectors. And then there's, I think, a really productive degree of latitude and flexibility in the investment mandate in order to then either invest in or build hopefully the best companies against those themes within each of the sectors. Let's hop into uh, healthcare, uh, the area that you head up. Can you tell us about what you focus on within the healthcare sector, but then also give us some sense of the the scope, like the proportion of healthcare investing versus other sectors within General Atlantic and also internationally your activities? Sure. You know, General Atlantic is investing probably seven to $8 billion a year of capital. That's across all geographies. We've got 14 offices around the world. That's across all sectors, six different sectors now. Healthcare is about 15% of the capital that's deployed. It tends to be more concentrated in the U.S., just given the size of the U.S. healthcare market, which is bigger than the next five combined. We're also very active in China, in India, in Latin and South America. We've done a little bit less in Europe in healthcare. And for us, healthcare, and I spend, I'm the global head, but I spend 90% of my time focused on the U.S. market and then would work with my partners on healthcare opportunities in those other geographies. For us, it's really technology-enabled services and technology companies within the healthcare space, again, with the thematic approach that I described. And just touching on some of the themes, the shift in the U.S. system from fee-for-service medicine to value-based care, which is a big topic with lots of different ways to play it, has been probably our most defining thematic area of focus over the last five, six, seven years. And we've invested in a bunch of different business models, companies at different stages, providing different services to different populations. So it's a huge theme for us. We think we're in the very early innings uh, for the sector and remain super excited about it. We tend to focus in on value creation capabilities and particularly just support two entrepreneurs, two founders. Can you tell us about like a good, almost a case study of a kind of healthcare company you invested in, maybe one in the US and one internationally? Yeah. So for us, I think back to like the early 2000s where I heard about the investing business, like the big advantage was access to capital. And if you think about the competitive intensity in our, our market now, we're really not differentiated around access to capital. And so we, we've tried to think, obviously, picking the right space, picking the right platform, all critical and getting good terms when you come in is, of course, important. But so much more, I think, of what will differentiate returns and outcomes in our business going forward is what are we doing with those companies once we're invested into them? And that's where... We're trying to earn our reputation as value-added partners, as thought partners, and really helping these entrepreneurs and teams grow their companies. And they're growing at hyper rates. And so there's just a huge amount of company building that goes into that. I'd say in almost every investment, we're really closely involved on the technology development roadmap and the building out of that capability to enable the business model that's strengthening value proposition, enabling hyperscaling. The human capital side, so there are always strong members of the team when we invest. But in almost every circumstance, we're really helping to build out that team and including layers down from the sea level in order to enable that that type of scalability. And then there's a lot of work on the strategy. So the benefit of all that thematic work up front is we're not learning about the business or that sector for the first time. We come with a point of view is why are there tailwinds? Are they sustainable tailwinds in the sector? How is the basis of competition changing? And what's going to be the business model or strategy that we think will win and not only get the benefit of those tailwinds, but ultimately capture market share and you get the compounding effect to drive growth. And again, we want that growth to be the primary driver of of our returns. So in every circumstance, we're going to be involved in those three areas. There's lots of other support from a capital market standpoint, you know, debt or equity raising, pricing of the product or service, digital customer acquisition and marketing, the go-to-market function, certainly acquisitions were really closely involved. 
But I think back to the portfolio over, I mean, there's almost not a name. I, I can't think of a portfolio company where we haven't been involved in at least half of those areas. And we don't charge any of the portfolio companies for that work. We think we can recruit world-class people to help in those areas. And so it tends to get used heavily by the portfolio. And that's where we want to, again, it's trying to move the needle on what could the outcome be while we're investors in the business. You know, Oak Street's one, just to give you an example, one in the US, we first invested in the business in 2015. Oak Street, for those that don't know, is a a risk-bearing primary care platform through clinics serving seniors in the US. But the business was built and designed to be in a value-based model where they're fully accountable for quarterbacking all of the care that goes to that population, but also accountable for the cost of the care that's being delivered to that population. And we first invested in 2015. I think there were seven locations really in the Chicago area. They had three super strong founders, but they were really just building out the technology platform. The model was just evolving into risk-based contracts. And We've now done, I don't know, three, I think, follow-on raises into the company. We helped recruit members of the senior team. We helped them execute their first acquisition. We bought a, a small chain of primary care, risk-bearing primary care clinics to help expand our presence in the Philadelphia market. We helped them do their crossover raise and lead that. They negotiated an investment with one of their major health plan partners. We helped them prepare to then go public and navigate. So it's really been through the life cycle of the investment. We've been a scalable capital partner of that team, but really worked in all those areas to help them build out the capability to enable the kind of growth that they've enjoyed. Excellent. When I think about the private equity or growth equity business, I think about it as a company in and of itself and the way you're able to deliver you know, such a great and compelling service to your portfolio companies is that you're able to build great teams internally. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of what you look for when you're building your teams and as you're kind of cultivating your culture? For the portfolio companies? Actually, internally for General Atlantic. So, you know, what makes you guys great is kind of the nature of your teams. Oh, I see. Yeah, sure. So look, it's there's probably the, the normal requirements in terms of what it takes to be good at the investing business. So we're looking for people that are really analytical, people that really can synthesize large amounts of information and get to clarity around the key drivers of the decision-making and evaluating risk and reward in an investment. But I think a lot of a big part of the growth investing business is to be entrepreneurial. And you've got to be that way to, I think, relate to and be good partners to the entrepreneurs in our portfolio. But there's also a hustle factor. Like you got to be out there taking some risk and saying, where is this market going? And am I willing to bet a little bit ahead of where the market is and the general awareness and appreciation of the direction of that market in order to take some risk and bet on usually relatively early stage businesses and have a real point of view. And there's personal accountability that comes from that. And so we got to find people that are comfortable operating in the uncertainty of that environment are going to be really diligent in their own education of the space and, and whatever is required to develop their personal conviction and then comfortable advocating for the organization taking that risk, that's all just to get the deal done. And of course, all of the normal diligence process that goes into it. But then we want to find people that are going to really work well with those portfolio companies. And the goal is, of course, to do make great investments. But as important, particularly for the franchise over a long period of time, is to be referenceable as partners to those teams. And so it's, we're also looking for people that when things aren't going great, They're going to be the type of people that are going to dig in and work alongside their portfolio companies to help them work through it. And we want that to be the kind of reference that when the next entrepreneur five years later is thinking about who to select as a capital partner, they should, I really recommend, they should talk to the portfolio companies of those firms and see what were they like to work with. And so there's, 
I think at least a little bit broader of a, a skill set that's required to do that well. The cultural points that we touched on earlier are also really important. Like we want good people that are thinking about, you know, they're humble, they're working really hard, but they're thinking about the bigger picture and they want to have a big impact on the world. They want to be charitable and give back. They want to be engaged in their communities. That's a little bit on the softer side, but a key part of the culture that we're really proud of. Well, speaking of that, those latter characteristics, and we're coming up on time here. So I have a few remaining questions. One question relates to all the other extracurricular activities you're involved in with the Idea Village, Echoing Green, and of course, UVA. Maybe let's do this in kind of the order I said. Can you tell us a little bit about the Idea Village? Yeah, the Idea Village is an incubator and accelerator in my hometown of New Orleans. And I first got involved several years ago, but what really a pretty special thing happened in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina hit the city. And there was just a remarkable number of uh, really talented young people that moved to the city to be part of the rebuilding of the city. And so there was a period of time there where it actually had the highest entrepreneurial activity per capita in the country. And the Idea Village was there to try and support that early entrepreneurial activity and to nurture it and to help it scale and grow. And it's been really exciting the last year. We actually had some of the first big exits for companies that were founded here have gone through a full cycle. And now we're seeing those entrepreneurs that have enjoyed success investing back in the community and members of those teams that are now breaking off and partnering with other people in the community to, to start companies. And so it's you know, Equine Green similar, they're social impact entrepreneurs. But those are both opportunities where I felt like maybe there were things like I'd learned in my day job that I could apply and be helpful to those entrepreneurs trying to improve their communities. I now live in New Orleans and moved back about a year ago, and it's had a tremendous impact on the city that I'm, I'm really proud of. You know, Equine Green really was founded by General Atlantic in the late 80s, and it's led and has been grown by a, a wonderfully talented entrepreneur, Cheryl Dorsey. You know, she was an Equine Green fellow before. And it's, you know, it's one of the hardest fellowships to get as a social impact entrepreneur. I think it's, I think the stat they quote is it's easier to get into Harvard than it is to get one of the Equine Green fellowships, but they're backing remarkable entrepreneurs all around the world. And basically they start, it can be for-profit or not-for-profit, but the idea is address some of the world's biggest challenges and then come present usually what is pretty close to a startup idea. And then Equine Green goes to this huge filtering part. They get thousands and thousands of applications they go through rounds and rounds of interviews to ultimately then select tens of fellows each year. And they provide them with a two-year fellowship and a lot of support to help them launch their organizations. And they've had some enormous success stories like Teach for America. But the organization, particularly in the last couple of years, given some of the focus of the inequities that I think we all uh, appropriately reflected on during the pandemic, has enjoyed remarkable growth. And so I'm, I'm super excited actually about the next phase of impact and growth from Equine Green on all those fronts. What do you think was great about your experience at UVA and or McIntyre? I'll give you the full circle. I don't tell many people this because I'm a little embarrassed about it, but I started off at UVA in the engineering program. And that's because I enjoyed math and science in high school. And my dad was an engineer and he said, you're going to love it. And my first semester at UVA, I got a 2-7. And my dad called, who was paying out of state tuition, and he said, you're going to really love LSU. I'm not paying for this if you're not going to actually apply yourself. And so it was a, a very healthy taste of, I won't say failure, but definitely not performing at the level that I, I should have been. And it was a, a maturation moment for me. And then I took some classes in the college, particularly on the religion side and the economic side. But then I found McIntyre, which is the undergraduate business school at UVA, where you go for your, your junior and your senior years. And it just clicked for me. It was an eye-opener where I like, I love talking about, like I could spend all day talking about businesses and investing. And so it was such a formative experience for me 
and so clarifying for me and then created such opportunity for me. And so for me, my while I love being involved with UVA because I love the school and it's a great excuse to get back to Browns and spend time there, I really spend time on it more because I'm so thankful for what it helped me develop and the growth that I experienced there and all the opportunity that it's afforded since. Excellent. Uh, you beat me, by the way, in your first semester of GPA. Uh, <laughs> last two questions, and, and we might even combine these because it could be a similar answer, but I typically like to ask about a leader that you particularly admire and a book that has had an impact on you. You mentioned the book at the front end of this conversation. So not sure if these two answers are going to be related to that. So on the leader side, I still struggle with this one. I'm a huge Muhammad Ali fan. So I boxed in high school, but it's, uh, so he's he's one of the best, if not the best boxer of all time, but more about his leader as a social leader and his willingness to leverage his fame and influence in an incredibly positive but very controversial way where he took huge personal risk and was never afraid to speak his mind. And I think with the benefit of time, just one of the most impactful and impressive leaders uh, out there. So I'm I'm a huge fan of this. On the book side, so I I will continue to advocate for uh, The Billionaire Wasn't, but I'll give you another one. It's a little bit on the opposite end, but it goes to entrepreneurship. This is a little bit more controversial, but I'm an Ayn Rand fan. And so Atlas Shrugged, was a formative book for me and talking about, I don't agree with all the, the philosophies of objectivism, but just the impact potential of the producers of the world, the entrepreneurs that are out there, they're willing to take the risk and throw it all on the line and take the accountability to build something. And any great business is solving a problem. And so they've identified a problem, they took enormous risk and took on a huge accountability and have built incredible organizations. It's one of the special things about this country now, I'm a big believer in charitable giving. So I don't, again, I don't agree with everything that Iran espouses, but incredibly formative book for me. I highly recommend it to people that have read it. Excellent. Well, Rob, thank you so much for taking the time. This has been a great conversation. I know uh, our audience will find this very insightful. RJ, thanks for the time. I enjoyed it. 